Well, good morning, everyone. One more time, that was like 55% of the room. Well, good morning, everyone. Man, it's great to be here. Uh, I can't express truly how great it is to be here and how grateful I am to be a part of the North Canton Chapel. We're in Akron, but we're still, we're still one people, one church. We have the same goal, and that goal is to see our world saturated with the gospel. I'm just 30 minutes north. Amen? I'm really, really, really excited to be here for two reasons today. Many reasons, but two specific reasons today. One reason is, is because it's always good, and I always count it a privilege to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I count it a sacred privilege to handle his word. Second is because normally, on Sunday mornings, I normally wake up at about 7 on a good Sunday. Um, I drive the five-minute drive to our building down on East Market from my house, and normally I try to get like a half hour of good prayer in, but then after that half hour of good prayer, normally I check the bathrooms because we, it's a multi-purpose space. The building isn't just our church, and a lot of people use it, so I check the bathrooms to make sure nothing crazy is going on. After I check the bathrooms, I go into the sanctuary, and again, it's a multi-purpose space, so normally I have to take the vacuum with me into the sanctuary so I can like catch all the crumbs and dust bunnies. Because it is a multi-purpose space, I normally like set up the tables that we do communion from and set up some other things along with our worship team. And then after that, we do our walkthrough where we pray and I remind the rest of our volunteer team why we're doing what we're doing. And then I normally like button up my shirt and like put on like my Sunday morning gear. This morning was great. I'm talking, I, I got here and Lori was like, what do you need? You need some water? I was like, man. I was like, I miss this, man. She's like, she's like, you need, she's like, you need some water? Some tea? How can I help you this morning? I'm like, man, you can help me by coming to Akron with me while we're <laughs> But no, it's great, to, it's great to be with you guys. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited about the series that's happening right now. I've listened along the last two weeks. I haven't been here, but I've been listening to the podcast, and I absolutely love this Pathway series. This Pathway series is us as a church. So not just Pastor Ryan, not just Pastor Dan, not just Pastor Dave or Pastor Brennan, but this is us together driving a stake in the ground. And this is saying, us saying as a church, this is what's important to us. This is us saying that the sole purpose of our existence isn't to just build a big building, to gather together in that big building for 80 minutes a week. And if we're really good Christians, we come back for another supplementary Bible study or something. This is us saying that our purpose As the North Canton Chapel, our purpose as a church of Jesus Christ in a geographical location is to see that geographic location saturated by the gospel of Jesus Christ for the good of the world around us. And that's exciting to me. I'm super excited. I don't know about you guys, but that's like, man. So you mean that, like, I have a purpose? It's not just Ryan And Pastor Dan, who are these professional Christians and talented individuals doing the work of the ministry, but I get to do the work of the ministry as well. I'm a part of this. This is us doing this together. I'm sorry. It makes me excited. I want to jump on a couch like Tom Cruise. It makes me excited. (laughs) 
So this morning, we're going to get into our last installment of the Pathway series. And Ryan's away, so he called me, and I'm really excited to come and really excited to do my best to communicate the last part of the Pathway series. So the Pathway series has centered on a statement, and the statement is, I am commissioned to saturate my world with others. One more time. I am commissioned to saturate my world with others. So, I am commissioned. We are commissioned as Christians, as the Church of Jesus Christ. We are commissioned. When Jesus says to take up his cross, for all of us to take up our crosses and to follow him, that is more than a suggestion. That is more than a statement. But my friends, that is a subpoena. And that subpoena calls every man, woman, and child to the courtroom of decision. We have been commissioned. Commissioned by Not the government, not our school system. We've been commissioned by Jesus, the God of all things. And what have we been commissioned to do? To saturate our world with others. Man, I listened back and I wish I could have been here. That was Ryan in the sweet spot. Man, I wish I could have been here. It sounded awesome from the podcast. To saturate my world. We are commissioned to saturate our worlds. This morning I have the unique privilege of talking about the last part with others, with others. So, before we get into the text, and before we do that, if you guys could do this with me, this is like, this is like a black church thing. So, <laughs> it, went, it went okay in first service, but I think I've got my folks in here. I see Nate and Christy over there. I've got my folks in here. So, if you would, please, with me, uh, turn to the person next to you. Can you turn to him, please? Can you look at him? If you don't know him, say hi. Turn to the person next to you. And can you repeat after me? We're going to practice one time, and then the second time we're going to do this with some gusto. We're going to feel this. So, first time, practice with me. Here we go. Repeat. The future lies lies. in oikonomia. (laughs) One more time. One more time. We're going to try this again. Turn to the person next to you. The future lies, the future lies. in oikonomia. In Ooh, I felt that. One more time. I got chills. Let's do it one more time. One more time for my students. Shout out. The future lies, the future lies. In, oikonomia. in oikonomia. Praise God. Now, the question that many of you, if not all of you, probably everybody in here except for Pastor Brandon, the question that you all are asking is, what in the world, what in, the, what in Sam Hill's oikonomia? What did I just repeat? Well, the Greek word for house is oikos. And the Greek word for the philosophy or the order or the structure by which the house functions is called oikonomia. We in English get our word economy from the Greek word oikonomia. So what oikonomia is, is it's the economy of the house. Is how the house functions. It's everything about how it goes. And in the Greco-Roman world, the house was more than just a place where one family lived. The house was a place where you had servants, you had multiple families, there was a head of the house. So there was an order and there was a structure and there was a philosophy by which the house moved. There was a philosophy by which the house functioned. You've probably heard it said before, that the kingdom of God is countercultural. 
And if you got a preacher who's feeling froggy, they're going to say, hey, the kingdom of God is counterintuitive. I'd like to contend to you today that the kingdom of God is not only those things, but the kingdom of God is a whole separate reality. It's a whole separate way of functioning. The kingdom of this world is its own house. It has its own oikonomia, but the kingdom of God has its own oikonomia. In church, we are citizens of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world. What are you talking about, James? In the kingdom of this world, the oikonomia says, if someone wrongs you, wrong them back. Seek revenge. And think about this. How often do we seek to do that when we are wronged? But in the kingdom of God, Jesus teaches us to forgive. Forgiveness is the ethic in the kingdom of God. Our oikonomia says that we should forgive. In the kingdom of this world, our oikonomia of humanity says to destroy my enemies. I want to go to war with my enemies. If they disagree with me, if they live in a different way that's threatening my philosophy or my way of life, I want to destroy them. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus says to love your enemies and to pray for them. This is the oikonomia of the kingdom of God. It's a whole nother reality. Because everything within us as humans wants to walk in unforgiveness and wants to let that unforgiveness fester in the bitterness. Everything in us as humans wants to destroy our enemies. I want to destroy my neighbors sometimes because they have these dogs that bark all night. <laughs> Amen, Julia. We want to destroy our enemies. We got a little baby. The dogs are barking all night, and they're outside. They don't go inside. But Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. So when I see Mumu, I high-five him. I high-five him, and I tell him to tell his parents I said hello. Because we're called to love our neighbors, not destroy our neighbors. You catch the drift? It's a different house. St. Augustine's going to say that it's a different city. He describes it as the city of God and the city of man. They have different functioning systems. They have a different oikonomia. Today, we're going to get into the last installment or the last statement of the Pathway series. And that last statement is with others. We are commissioned to saturate our world, not alone, but with others. The oikonomia of this world calls us to an individualistic consumerism. We are called to radical individualism. I was told my whole life, you guys are the microwave generation, millennials, post-modernity. We are a microwave people across history. We want it our way. We want the world to be Burger King. We believe that we are a part of Fleetwood Mac. We want to go our own way, don't we? If we're honest... It's all about the me. Think about the things that we do in the course of the day. Think about our calendars. I know mine, Jesus. Inward pointed, inward focused. It's about me. But Jesus is calling us to another reality as Christians. And that reality 
is out of this individualistic consumerism into a self-sacrificial community. Community kills consumerism. And that's what Christ is calling us to. That's the oikonomia. And we're going to look at a beautiful principle of oikonomia that couldn't be put in a better way because it came from the lips of Jesus himself. So if you would, please, with me, if you have the scroll, if you have the physical copy of the Bible, please turn to John chapter 17. And for my students, you can take out your phones and you can press on the Bible app, not the Instagram app. And once you get that, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm sorry, I'm old school. We got to stand up for Jesus and his word. All right. So John chapter 17, we are going to start in verse 20 when you have it. And we're going to read through verse 23. If you don't have it, it's okay. It's very large on these two screens up here. I'll read. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe on me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and I love them, even as you love me. This is God's word, and this is true. You can be seated. I love the book of John. I love it. It's incredible. Any of you guys, if you ever want to like have dinner and talk about, well, right now I'm doing this whole 30 thing and it's like, it's kind of terrible. So wait till, wait till 15 more days and then we'll have dinner together. And we can talk about the book of John. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Some years ago when I came to know Jesus Christ, they handed me a King James Bible and a Lecrae CD. I guess they figured I like rap music. <laughs> so I was like, where do I start? And they were like, start in Matthew. So I read Matthew, then I read Mark, and I was like, this is pretty similar. Then I read Luke, and I was like, man, this has some stuff. Then I read John, and I was like, jaw drop. <laughs> I was like, whoa, this doesn't start with a, with a Jesus Christmas story. This starts with this whole, like, Jedi philosophy in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I can imagine Yoda saying that. <laughs> and then the book of John just like starts off, and it keeps moving, and it keeps going, and you find these emphatic statements where Jesus is declaring that he is God, that he is the great I am. And as the great I am, he is sent here to do these things. I am the bread of life. Anyone who hungers, come to me. I'm greater than hunger. I'm the light of the world. I'm greater than darkness. I am the good shepherd. Not like those other shepherds, but I'm the good shepherd. Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. Right as a man is going to be raised from the dead. Jesus is all these things. But John, but John in his book presents this really cool section. And theologians like to call it the upper room discourse. They also like to call it the farewell discourse. And this conversation that Jesus is going to have in his disciples, 
is going to start in John chapter 14, and it's going to go through John chapter 17. And this conversation has four main parts or four main sections. Part one, Jesus in John chapter 14 is telling them basically, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to the cross. This is what's going to happen. But as he's telling them that, he tells them, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, also believe in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. There's room for you. This is what I'm going to do. And that gives them peace. That enables them to function in the complexity of the impending doom, per se, because we know that Jesus raises from the dead, but to them, the impending doom of their disciple and leader. In John chapter 15, the conversation's moving, and I like to think of it as they're walking along a side road in Jerusalem, and Jesus sees a vine, and Jesus begins to teach an object lesson, and Jesus tells them, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Abide in me. Abide in me. Things are already crazy, and things are going to get crazier, but abide in me, and you'll bear much fruit. Then in John chapter 16, part 3, Jesus tells them, hey, there's going to be trouble. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. And he's speaking to a group of people, all who are going to die for his sake. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And in John chapter 17, it gets to my favorite part of this discourse. In John chapter 17, some scholars believe this happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some believe it happens on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. I think it's less about where it happened, but I think it's more about what happened. Because what happens in John 17 is amazing. And what happens is Jesus begins to pray. And on the eve of the cross, the most gruesome death ever in human history that Jesus knows he has to take, the scripture records that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is going to sweat blood. Jesus is about to take the cross. In one of Jesus' final prayers, before he takes that cross, Jesus doesn't pray that his disciples would become extraordinary expositors of the scripture. What Jesus doesn't pray is that his disciples would learn church growth patterns and grow large buildings. What Jesus doesn't pray is that his disciples would learn how to optimize an 80-minute exercise on Sunday morning. But what Jesus prays is that his disciples would function in unity. What Jesus prays in John chapter 17 over and over and over again in five or six different ways in this circular Johannian pattern is that his disciples would walk in unity. Today we're going to call that unity, witness. Everybody say witness. Today for the time that we have left, we are going to talk about the anatomy of witness. We're going to talk about what this idea of unity looks like that Jesus is going to talk about in John chapter 17. And as we looked at the guts of that prayer in verses 20 through 23, we're going to talk about the anatomy of witness. In verses 20 and 21 and 22, we'll talk about 23 last. 
verses 20 through 22, what we're going to find is going to seem a little bit circular. So if you read it, you're going to be like, okay, he said that, but he said that again, and Jesus prayed that, and Jesus prayed that again. Was Jesus tired? Because it seems that he's praying the same thing over and over again. But what we find happening in verses 20 through 23 is Jesus simply saying, Father, as we are one, I pray that they would be one. Us and them. Them and us. I pray that as we are one, they would be one. What in the world does that mean? God, the eternal self-existent one, has eternally existed as a community. When we talk about the paradox of what the Trinity is, So when you hear someone talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you normally hear them talk about three distinct persons, but one distinct essence. They are three, but they are one. What does that mean? We can't fully comprehend and we can't fully know. But what we do know is that they are three and that they are one. And that is our God. Our God is a community. And what we know about our God from the very beginning, what we read in Genesis, is that Our God, who is one, who is a community, is on a mission. The God who is one is a community on mission. This God in the beginning sets out to create the whole universe. Creation is his original mission as we know it as communicated through the scriptures. Creation is his mission. And we find the good and beautiful God seamlessly accomplishing his mission. He creates everything, and at the pinnacle of that creation, he creates man in his own image, in his own likeness. He breathes the breath of life into Adam, and Adam becomes a living being, and Adam is in perfect relationship with Jesus. God is in perfect relationship with Adam. And God looks upon Adam, and he says, you know what? It's not good for you to be alone, Adam. So I'm going to create Eve. And Adam and Eve perfectly complement each other. And they are in this community with the God of the universe. And what you find in Genesis 1 and 2 is beautiful. And God walks with them in the cool of the night. They're in perfect relationship. And the God who is on mission sets this community, which is humanity, on a mission. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. Saturate my world with this goodness that I've called very good. Saturate the world with it. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue it. You have dominion over it. And then in Genesis chapter 3, what do we find? We find that community broken. And that community is broken by sin. That community is broken by Adam and Eve saying, hey, God, thanks for creating me, but no thanks on telling me how to live my life. Hey, God, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to follow my own system, my own oikonomia. Even though you've set up one for me, you've set up a perfect house for me, I'm going to develop my own, and I'm going to follow my own philosophy. And from there, what do you find? You find that community broken because there's not only a horizontal break between God and man, but there is a relational break. 
Adam begins to blame Eve. Eve begins to blame the serpent. The next chapter, you're going to find Cain and Abel, who are brothers. Cain's going to kill his brother. By Genesis chapter 6, the mess grows to a situation where God looks upon it and God grieves the fact that he created humanity in the first place. And a flood destroys the situation. And then by Genesis chapter 11, it gets so crazy that they try to build a tower to heaven in their own pride and deceitfulness. God separates them. God scatters the community. But then we see unfold in Genesis chapter 12 the good and beautiful God on a new mission. And his new mission is to redeem and restore this broken humanity back into its created purpose. And what you find in the Old Testament is this God who is a community, this God who is three, but this God who is one on a mission to see this humanity redeemed and restored back into his original purpose. And what you're going to find is God the Father decreeing in the Old Testament. You're going to find him speaking through angels, through prophets, through priests, through king. You're going to find in the Old Testament what's called a theophany. It's where Jesus pops up in the Old Testament. My favorite example is where Jesus pops up in the fiery furnace. There's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego about to get burned up. But then there's Jesus who is saving them, which is a foreshadowing of how he saves us, humanity, who are in the fiery furnace of our sin and our shoddiness and our shadiness and our brokenness, but Jesus saves us. And we are forgiven and we leave unscathed. It's beautiful. And you see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. He doesn't stay on the prophet, the priest, and the king, but he empowers them for the work of the ministry to call Israel away from themselves and away from the pagan nations back to Yahweh, a community on mission. And then it's really beautiful because the word of the Lord for 400 years stops. But then the word of the Lord comes back and it comes upon this guy named John who was in the wilderness eating locusts and honey, being a wild man. We probably think he was crazy. But John is baptizing folks and he's talking about, hey, I know God hasn't spoken in 400 years, but check this out. There is one who is coming who's going to fully restore the situation. At the fullness of time, God sends his son Jesus to restore and redeem the situation. And Jesus is born as a baby. I have a baby right now, so sometimes I think about, like when I'm changing a diaper, that Jesus had to get his diaper changed. The God of the universe humbles himself and comes as a human, lives a perfect life. And what's the first thing he does when he's called by the spirit into ministry? He develops a community. He is looking to saturate the world with others. God is looking to saturate the world with others. Because it's a part of the oikonomia. It's a part of the great philosophy 
of the kingdom of God, the economy, the structure, is that we don't do this alone, but that we do this with others. And then we find a really cool book in Genesis chapter 11 and Acts chapter 2. Jesus raises from the dead. Praise God. I can say praise God for the resurrection when it's not Easter. Jesus raises from the dead with all power. And Jesus teaches his disciples for 40 days what it means to be a part of the great oikonomia of the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 1-3, it says he teaches them about the kingdom of God. And then he tells them to go to the upper room and to wait that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to empower them to be witnesses of the resurrection. And just as Jesus says, the Holy Spirit descends upon them, empowers them. And you see this beautiful scene where because it was the Pentecost festival, there were Jews from a bunch of different cultures and a bunch of different places who spoke a bunch of different languages. And the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And what God once scattered had been redeemed and restored by the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and people who have been scattered by God and given different language now have the ability to speak and to share the gospel in their own language everyone's able to hear the gospel where there was chaos there is now community and in Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47 what you're going to find is the byproduct of being filled by the spirit individuals filled with the Holy Spirit the natural byproduct is that they are a community and they as a community would go on to saturate the world their known world with the gospel of Jesus Christ their known world they were 12 dudes a ragtag group of 12 dudes they were this wild cohort and this wild cohort was filled with the Holy Spirit and they multiplied from 12 to 30 million in 300 years. The fastest growing religion ever in human history. Because it's the only real one. Somebody say amen. amen. And that community saturated their world with others. As we exist together on mission, we reflect good and beautiful God who created us. And that is what we're called to do. It's what it means to be a Christian. In Acts chapter 11, they were called Christians, which means Christ-like, little Jesus. They looked like little Jesuses, and they were called that. What it looks like for us to be reflections of the good and beautiful God, part of that philosophy is that we are, as a community, saturating our world together. Together. It's that we're stepping away from the way of this world, which is consumerism and radical individuality. And we're saying that we're going to give that up, that we're going to put that down, because Jesus gave up equality with God. He counted it as a thing not to be grasped, and he humbled himself. So we're going to humble ourselves as servants, with knees bowed and bent to Jesus. We are called, we are commissioned to saturate our world together. And lastly, as I close, my favorite part, this is great. Get ready for this. This is wonderful. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me 
and I love them, even as you love me. This is wild. I don't know if you're ready for this. Like, this is wild. What this is saying is that one of the greatest testimonies to an unbelieving world around us of the goodness of Jesus Christ, an unbelieving world around us, one of the greatest testimonies, one of the greatest ways they'll know, right, is by our ability to reflect the unity that exists in the community that is our God. By our ability to be together, by our ability to practice this witness, it is one of the greatest testimonies to an unbelieving world that God is real, that God is real. The church in the first century was potent, it was powerful, and it was vibrant. The church in the first century was the only place that exploded the caste system that existed. In the book of Philemon, you're going to find a situation where you've got a slave and where you've got a master. Paul, because they both were Christians, is going to call them to reconciliation. In what world do you find a caste system being exploded? In what world do you find a slave and a master, people who live at two different socioeconomic levels, being called back to a table for mutual forgiveness and reconciliation in the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ in the first century was the only place where Jews and Gentiles had meaningful interactions. Jews who received the word of God first. Jews who are God's chosen people who have this rich history are sitting at a table with pagan Gentiles What's the only thing that's strong enough to bring them together? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. It was the only place in that world. And if we think about it, if we look around, all of us are from different cultures, different upbringings, different families. Every family, every house has their own oikonomia. My wife grew up in a house where they sat at similar seats, the same seat at the table as they ate dinner. We never ate dinner together. Different ways of going about it. And if you look around, we all have different ways of going about it. We're different ages. We come from different cities, maybe. Maybe you live in the wonderful suburb of North Canton or Jackson. Or maybe you live in rural Uniontown. Maybe you live in downtown Canton. But we're all in this room together. And what's not only powerful enough to wash away our sin, but what's powerful enough to unite us hand in hand? The blood of Jesus. And my friends, that is a testimony that the world needs to see. Us functioning together in unity. Us on mission together. And as we do that, the glory of God is shown in a powerful way. Psalm 133 Oh, how beautiful it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. For it is like the oil that runs down Aaron's beard. What does that mean? That meant that Aaron was anointed and that the Holy Spirit fell on Aaron. And he was able to function in his calling. There's power in unity. There's power in it. We weren't meant to go about this alone. 
And in a world of celebrity, that has transitioned over into Christian culture. And we have our Christian celebrities. We have our power pastors. We have our favorite worship teams and our worship leaders. But we are not meant to pursue that. We're meant to pursue gospel saturation together. I coached football at a local high school in Akron. This last Thursday, I probably had 25 guys, just dudes in my front room, and it's not that large of a space. So there's a bunch of them in the front room sweating. My wife afterwards is like spraying for breeze everywhere. (laughs) So our front room is just filled with dudes. I could not minister to them alone. If Julia wasn't there, And if Julia wasn't asking questions that I don't ask, like, hey, do we have enough paper plates? Do we have enough paper forks and spoons, James? Because you're not washing any dishes. So you need to get these paper forks and spoons. If she wasn't there exercising a spiritual gift of hospitality that she has, it doesn't work. If Skylar's not there, being the shepherd that he is and loving them in ways that I don't. If Max and the rest of our village is not showing up at football games, holding signs, making grab bags, and filling it with stuff for them, encouraging them, sending them messages. Us as a community together are far better than we are alone. And they have no idea why people from different backgrounds are together in a house trying to serve them. They have no idea because we work better together because we were designed to. It's part of the oikonomia of the kingdom of God. One last story and I'll sit down. I'm connected to these wonderful individuals in North Hill and Akron. They're all refugees from Bhutan. In their culture, burials are a huge deal. Normally they have land and they amass land so that they can't bury their family members. It's a very serious activity. They come over to America They get in houses on little plots and they don't have land to bury their dead. It causes a conundrum within their community. So the churches get together, 10 Nepali churches, 10 small Nepali churches get together. And they say, whenever someone in our community dies, we're going to have a funeral. Everyone puts up money. And now they have bought a plot of land in a cemetery in North Hill, and they hold funerals for everyone in their community. And to talk to Pastor Samuel and Pastor Santa what I find is that somebody's getting saved at every funeral because at those funerals, they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're able to saturate their people group and their community better together. I'll leave you with this, brothers and sisters. I'll leave you with this. I don't believe the apologetic of our day is going to be found in a book is going to be found in like a 10-part discussion. I believe the greatest apologetic of our day, in the words of Dehadi Lewis, is authenticity. And I believe that authenticity in our world is best seen in our ability to put down our own needs and our own wills and step towards each other and live together as community. The light shines brightest then, my friends. God bless you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. God, in Psalm 133, it says how beautiful it is when brothers dwell together in unity. For it is like the oil that runs down Aaron's beard. 
And God, we know that that represents the anointing, that there is power in our unity. And God, I pray this morning that we would be stirred towards a unity, that we would be stirred towards a Christian life that is not lived out alone, that's lived out together. God, the way of your house, the philosophy, the economy of the kingdom of God is that we are on mission together. God, I pray that you would bind us arm in arm. We would see that happen in Stark County in miraculous ways. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.